expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Yeah. Okay. Okay, sweetie. Mommy's got to go arrest somebody, okay? I'll be home for dinner. Great, I love you. Bye. You're a mom? Yeah. And you can holster your gun. You're both staying here. What? No, come on. This is the final takedown. You can't let her do this to us. No, Agent Shaw's right. I'm his target. I can't compromise your team by walking in the line of fire. We'll take him down. We'll still be your caller. Mm-hmm. Wow. She's a mom. I never would have pegged her for that. I figured she was a career-driven woman with no time for a family. Well, not everybody makes that choice. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 24th, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. An interesting show for you today with a number of subjects, and you can call 519-661-3600 to join in the conversation if you have any opinions or comments on any of the subjects we're going to be talking about today. And of course, as always, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today on the roster, we're going to be talking about, near the end of the show, the diamond bailout. Should we be putting money and lending money to a company in the city in order for the purpose of uh, saving jobs? We also want to ask the question, is Michael Ignatieff actually the cause of the war in Libya? That's a scary question you've got for us there, Robert. Mm-hmm. And uh, also we want to see it, what, is, what, actually, what conditions actually justify war? Uh, for the West to go into war is kind of a thing which you want to look at with regard to Libya. Yes. Eh? And I will be beginning the show with another subject entirely, and that is on feminism, a, a subject I haven't really discussed since almost the first and second episode of this show called Just Right. And um, is it still relevant? Because, of course, last couple weeks ago was International Women's Day. And um, two weeks ago, Tuesday, on March 8th, which I believe was International Women's Day, I found myself uh, kind of being set up for an unexpected impromptu debate with local London feminist and poverty activist Megan Walker. Happened last week on uh, CJBK. I guess I got volunteered by Andy Utman to do a debate. That wasn't the reason I called in, but it was interesting. And, you know, I had to ask myself after what I heard her say, both on the air and to me, was this representative of feminism? And I went through the National Post this week, saw articles by Judy Rebick and other people. And, uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> her opinion. And, uh, you know, I guess the question is, is feminin- feminism, especially in the West, mainly North America, Canada, U.S., still relevant? Some people say yes, some people say no. But um, the subject was brought up because of International Women's Day, and the spin was whether or not it was still a valid movement in the 21st century. Has the war for women's rights been won? Is it over? And the question was inspired, I guess, by Margaret Wentz's commentary that day that appeared in the Globe and Mail. And basically what she said was, thank science, thank the Industrial Revolution, and not just feminism, suggested Went in terms of why women are better off today than they were in the past. Interestingly, there's a lot of people, both male and female, called into the show. You know, one fellow called in and says, no, the war is not over because few women are in the over 100,000 list. You see, there's, there's a reason why the women aren't equal to men yet. 
Only uh, four to five women, apparently, uh, are in that list, and therefore, quote, the facts show... Making more than $100,000, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yes. Uh, therefore, the facts show that the war is not over. Mind you, that is a government list. And it only referred to the police and, to police and fire. Yeah. So. Okay. And, um, of course, Megan said that the war is not over, despite major accomplishments. It was interesting... Uh, we hear why Megan became a feminist, and she talked about her grandmother being a suffragette who fought for the right of women to vote. Um, women were not considered persons in her grandmother's day, and that's true. Uh, women were not considered persons until the 1920s in Canada. Can you imagine that, Robert? Yes, legally, of course, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, she just talked about some personal experiences, uh, you know, how she grew up with three sisters. So it's a kind of a female family, and you can see where, where the slant would come from. But um, in justifying why she thought that feminism still hadn't reached its goal, and in terms of why feminism is not a dead movement, even though women now have the equal right to vote with men, here are some of the reasons that she gave for justifying that. Uh, one, we have 500 missing Aboriginal women in the country. Hmm. She says her agency has increased services over 105% over this time last year. She never said how many that was. That could be two people to four people, four people to eight people, whatever, but 105%. Um, she said there's not a not not equality for women in this country. Why is I, Bob, if I could just interject, mm -hmm. I remember many years ago, I was on a television debate with... <laughs> I was going to bring that up later, And actually. I asked her specifically the question, name one law in this country which disadvantages women and specifically, and advantages men. Mm -hmm. There is no law. Uh -huh. and, and that's the case, but that's not what they're talking about, and that's the thing that needs to be pointed out. You know, she asked, why is it the police and fire services don't have equal numbers of women? She said there should be. Well, who says there should be? She does, know? apparently. Yeah. She said there should be an equal number of women at the 100,000-plus club level. I'm thinking <laughs> in the government there shouldn't be any, men or women. But... And then, she, of course, she says the most dangerous place for a woman continues to be in her home. Uh, why is a man charged with murdering his girlfriend out on bail? We should be outraged. And then um, she refers to Margaret Wendt as being a, uh, as, as an academic. But what she sees every day with women, you know, being beaten, all this stuff is unfair, she said. And then came the big question of the day. And <clears throat> this is where Andy Utman brought up the fact that International Women's Day is actually a holiday. Guess where? <laughs> you already told me yeah, no. <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> and, and given the lack of rights that women have in that part of the world, uh, you know, he says, I wonder if the Talib Taliban is, is celebrating International Women's Day. You know what? Here's what she, she said, uh, Megan Walker. And by the way, this came up in all the National Post articles about how the women's movement is basically turning a blind eye to this. And she says, well, she goes, quote, that's a tragic issue all in itself. We could spend hours talking about what happens to women in the Mideast. Quote, but you know, I'm sometimes upset about what happens. You know, we hear about honor killings, and I'm opposed to that. But And I think we need to do some work around that. Mm. But I don't think we need to leave out how many Christian children are killed by their parents as well. That's a deflection of the issue beyond deflection. It's almost an insult. It's a way of not even uh, responding to yeah, the issue. Oh, we have yeah. to do some work with all those yes. all those poor women who are getting brutally murdered and raped yeah. in uh, What's the work? Muslim countries. You know, and when you find out what the work is, it's almost laughable. We need to talk about that as well, she says. There's a whole issue about the number of children that are shaken by their parents when they're angry and upset. 
what has that got to do with anything? Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, and so the motivation, she says, the motivation is certainly different, but Christian children are also killed. So to her, it's the death that's the important thing, not the motivation. The fact that an honor, honor killing equals accidental death by shaking or mm -hmm. whatever. Even, or even murder. Or even or anger, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, she says, we have Canadian children killed every single day in this country. So we need to address why children are killed and then look for solutions. And so uh, she was asked to list the top three to five areas of concern for women. Always ends up being one. Money, 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 money. Same pay, equal pay, more pay, money pay. But that's how it goes. And she says there's no women's equality in the country. She kept repeating. It was always a rep repetition. And she goes, as a feminist, I would say that if we could achieve equality, we would certainly achieve great success in ending violence and abuse against women. There's her thinking. She thinks that if she gets this equality of pay, <laughs> that somehow that will end all the other problems. And, and personally, I don't even see it as being related in any way whatsoever. It's, it's ironic you say this. This is bringing up so many memories for yeah. me. I was on a committee, on a city committee on... Uh, Crime Prevention Advisory Committee with Megan Walker, and she brought up pay equity. And I'm going, excuse me, how can pay equity prevent crime? And, of course, she, she, you're about to tell us all of this, but um, the whole point was this got blown up in the media, and uh, I was I was labeled, uh, I don't know, uh, misogynist or yeah. whatever, just because I... yeah You were a trustee I, at the time, right? I was a trustee on the yeah. school board, and I'm yeah. representing the school board on the uh, committee, but... I could not see for the life of me, still can't to this day, understand how pay equity can uh, prevent uh, somebody from beating his wife. I, I guess the thinking is if you have enough money, you can run. I don't know. I, I, she hasn't ex actually followed it through with any thoughts on that yet. That was an argument she put forward yeah. at the time, but mm -hmm. still, to uh, fine a, 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 an employer $50,000 for not uh, uh, yeah. Obeying the uh, pay equity rules, uh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. She says, uh, quote, we shouldn't have stereotypes in a society where women are nurses and men are police officers. She says all boys and girls should be provided with the same opportunities, provided by whom, I don't know, other men and women, I guess. They shouldn't be stereotyped. And with respect to the police, she says it's not because of the police department. And this is interesting. She's not blaming the, the employer, but it's because of society. Society still has expectations about where women should go and where men should go, for sure. She uses that phrase a lot, for sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and she says we still carry the stereotypes of differences in strength between men and women and things like that. It's a stereotype, not a reality, apparently, as a generality, you know. And her second issue, of course, was poverty. And the argument there is the same John Clark argument, but only in this case it's... Uh, about women. More women live in poverty than men, so we have to address poverty for sure. <laughs> and then it's access to education. More women are denied access to education. Did you know that? And likely, because, likely, because of poverty and equality issues and single parenthood and all those things. Women are discriminated against in the workforce because they are of a childbearing age. So there are women who are not hired or given a promotion subtly because of discrimination. A woman may ask for maternity leave more than once, she says. And on top of her, but of course, on top of her list, she says, is equality. And she always says, we as a society. She always uses a collective. There's never any individual effort in this at all. It's all society. Need, and society's her enemy, by the way. She's always talking about society being the problem, but society is the solution as well. So 
I don't know which way it is. You go to the, do you go? Do you usually go to the problem to solve it in that way? I Actually, she's not correct there. Yeah. She she thinks that not society is solution. She thinks government and force of and violence is the solution, and uh, that's what she's always after. And she says we need to remove the barriers to women gaining equality in society, and there's just too many right now through force. Yeah, women are not paid equal pay for equal work. Well, I don't know where that's actually true. I don't know where you'd find a man and woman side by side in a job doing exactly the same thing and not getting paid pretty close to the same wages, if not in the same wage scale, right? And again, this is the thing, like all socialists, they, they view work as being the object of the employer's value system, not the employee themselves. It's a very dehumanizing view of, of labor. And uh, she also says, we have judges who say the woman deserved to be raped because of how she dressed. And she says, women are never released on bail after being accused of killing a man. Men are released on bail after being accused of a woman. Women are not valued equally in society. Rather blanket statements. On Huge all blanket statements. And it, it discounts the fact that approximately half of, the, half of society is women. It's actually slightly and they, over. <laughs> yeah, and they vote. So if all of her causes are so just, why hasn't she started the, the feminist party and just taken over the country? Forget about Harper and all the rest of them. We can put them all out of business. And uh, so th that's how the, 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 the show went or her calls went. And then, uh, some callers called in and one called in a woman. She says, oh, yeah, we don't have equality. And she referred to a movie. Uh, about women who fought for equal pay in England about half a century ago. She says there just was no equal pay. Everybody, equal pay. It's not about rights anymore. It's not about voting. It's about, about equal pay. It's all about money. And that's what Judy Rabbit writes about. She, and, and, of course, the, the, the caller uh, defines herself as a retired social worker. So, quote, I've been completely educated. <laughs> we need government jobs. And in hospitals, there are mainly men. And then, you know, despite the fact that the two heads of the hospitals are women. And she says, well, good, but we need more. Yeah. So even if you got 200%, you still need more. And not only that, yeah. most nurses are uh, women. And uh, I would say maybe half the doctors are women. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and then she got upset. She says she gets upset by articles like, um, you know, Wendy's because, you know, I work in the trenches and I hear from people every day who are victimized because they're beaten black and blue or isolated in their homes or they're forced to give up their jobs by men whom they trusted to love them. And then they go home to their homes where they're violated every single day. And so these wim <laughs> are women who would read Wendt's article and say, this is a woman writing this. You know what I'm thinking? Wow. Yeah. Talk about baggage. And she says, there are women murderers, but the overwhelming majority of murder victims are women. And so I'm hearing that and I'm thinking, well, would Megan therefore accept that equality in the rate of murder rates would be the thing we should be shooting for? <laughs> Pardon the pun, shooting for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, she goes, the majority of men are great, but the majority of abusers are men. They consider women to be property, inferior, slaves to their demands. And when the relationship ends, they say, if I can't have you, nobody can. Some are religious and will say, see you in heaven. Okay, now I know there's guys like that. Yes, there are. And they're complete jerks. There's women like that, too. And there's women like that, too. And uh, so what, how do you make it a gender issue? And sure enough, that's where I showed up on the scene and, and, and found myself suddenly in a debate with Megan. And I first thing I said was, I said, look, violence isn't a gender issue. It has nothing to do with feminism as such. And, uh, you know, I talked about how it's true that women were not considered persons before and under the law in the 1920s. That when they were, that was something to be celebrated. But as far as I was concerned, it kind of effectively ended the need of feminism as such as it was seen in the, you know, in terms of being a gender-driven political movement. 
And, you know, the kind of equality that we hear people talking about today is not equality before and under the law, but equality of kind. And I pointed out if Joe's making a million bucks, Mary should make a million bucks. And this kind of uh, equality doesn't even exist among males, let alone by gender. It's kind of an irrational viewpoint. And I just pointed out, you know, there's only individual rights. And uh, Megan kept pointing out how women are discriminated against because of childbearing age. And I said, well, that's true. You can't change that, though. You can't make men have the kids, and that doesn't change the objective value of a worker in the marketplace who will put, put themselves in and out of that marketplace. And uh, to which Megan says, well, no, she just, she just basically does the he said, she says kind of arguing. You know, she says uh, violence is a gender issue without justifying it. And she says, what I'm advocating is equal opportunities for women. And she never says from who, but it's always implied from government. And governments run apparently 75% by men, so <laughs> I don't know how she's going to get around that. And um, so basically, and she didn't want me to talk or want to talk about the fact that women are basically discriminated in favor of when it comes to issues like child custody and the court cases and things like that. And I, I personally don't complain about that per se. I mean, there's, there are other issues involved there. And basically, I think we have equality now. I'll never be able to bear children. I can't go running to the government to make it possible for me to bear children. So, you know, what I pointed out was the government does the second best thing, and they already have. They've given paternity leave for fathers, right? The father can take uh, the time off for maternity, maternity leave, calling it paternity leave. And I, and I argued that if more fathers were to cho chose to take maternity leave than mothers, you'd find employers discriminating against them too because it's not a gender issue, it's an economic issue. So, you know, and then she just says, you know, it is a gender issue. She just kept going around and around and around. And, um, but again, she complained about society's attitudes, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting here, I have a, I have a uh, article from the National Post here, just looked at it today, talking about where women are equal and where they're not. It's called Strive We Must. And uh, the writer, a woman, let's see what's her name here, uh, that's Jane McDougall, made an interesting point. She says, all cultures, e even and especially our own, are primitive, for, that, for they are informed by gender firstly and lastly. And she goes, where do I get that idea? She says, I get it from other women. You see, she says, I must be dauntingly beautiful, for I strike fear into the hearts of women. I see it all the time, because I am single. I operate without the express consent and protection of a man. There is no Aegeus that shields me, and that makes women uneasy. As it should, because women cannot control men, they do the next best thing. They seek to control me. <laughs> and that's the issue. It's just like in the labor movement. It's labor versus labor, women versus women in that sense. And it almost seems to me that, that like many feminists, Megan seems resentful that women have a choice that men do not have, and that is to bear children. She can now choose not to bear children. I mean, you can. Didn't women fight for the right to abortion laws and the rights to all of those things, those things made them even physically equal in many ways. So, uh, you know, why should, be, why should she be treated differently as a man in the, in the marketplace? It's part of the victim culture as yes. well. And, uh, you know, she said that, you know, she has the extra choice and she wants to be in a position of having her cake and eating it too, which is completely what the ideology is based on. And so uh, Andy asked her, you know, she asked Megan, do you think Bob is an anti-feminist? <laughs> and she says, well, I think people listening to Bob can make up their own mind on that. I'm not even going to respond to his last comment. So she wouldn't respond to a lot of my comments that I made. 
And I think that's part of what she thinks, too. See, she's a woman and therefore doesn't have to engage in an intellectual debate. I don't know if that's her thinking on that subject, because that's how she comes across. And, Robert, I know both of us have debated Megan over the many years, and, and uh, you know, she, seems, she needs to justify nothing, just to repeat it over and over again. It seems to be working for her, don't you think? Yeah, it seems to be. There's a lot of people out there willing to uh, believe in that stuff, but... Well, you know, is, feminist, is feminism a legitimate movement? You know, based on everything that those who support feminism, you know, everything I hear them say, I would have to say the answer is no. Used to be, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, am I a feminist? No, because I believe that women should be equal before and under the law, not in kind, which feminists believe to be an unkind comment. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I've got to say on that subject today. Going to take a break now, and we come back after... We're going to be talking about the war in Libya, and I think I have quite a bit to learn from some of the things Robert has told me that is coming up. So right after this, we'll be right back. Castle, what part of unasked don't you understand? All of it. For future reference, it means get the hell out and don't take anything. Unasked. Nice. Probably ass. She always like this? Castle has the attention span of a cocker spaniel. Mm, and the loyalty. He follows you around. From what I've observed, this unorthodox partnership works well for you. For now. Is it enough? Is it enough for you to hop on a Learjet six times a year, catching serial killers across the country? I'd be lying if I said it was easy. How do you manage? You miss a few birthdays and you make a lot of phone calls. My husband tucks her in every night. Tells her that mommy's off slaying dragons. Prime Minister Stephen Harper says Canada is at war. This country and its allies endorsed immediate international military action to stop Libya's leader from attacking civilians. Let's go to John Northcott now. John, what more did Stephen Harper have to say? Uh, well, as you say, uh, describing it as uh, an act of war, this is then, of course, the second uh, uh, military situation that Canada is now involved in, including Afghanistan. Uh, this coming out of the one-day meeting in Paris. And you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And that was uh, from the CBC, a declaration of war by Stephen Harper. Mind you, I did not see Stephen Harper declare war. I did not see any debate in the House of Commons. But with that declaration of war upon Libya by the United Nations, the face of world conflict has changed forever. War has now become a perpetual means to enforce a new world order based on altruism. And we've entered a new age of despotism, and we are at the center of it. By we, I mean Canada. That's an uh, interesting thing to say, perpetual war. That's yep. not a very promising future. It is not. And I'm going to explain that in the uh, second or the third quarter of the hour, exactly what I've meant by that. The proper question, Harper, Barack Obama, and the other world leaders who have responded militarily to the UN Security Council resolution of March 17th, should have, they should have asked themselves was, under what conditions should I as a leader of a Western democracy, declare war on another sovereign nation. What could possibly provoke my nation to send troops to their deaths and spend hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars in the endeavor? In the, in the, in the endeavor? 
And with the experience of Vietnam in their history, the United, Na- the United States answered that question in the form of the Weinberger Doctrine. U.S. Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger listed the following conditions for war. Number one, the United States should not commit forces to combat unless the vital national interests of the United States or its allies are involved. Number two, U.S. troops should only be committed wholeheartedly and with the clear intention of winning. Otherwise, troops should not be committed. Three, U.S. combat troops should be committed only when clearly defined political and military objectives and with the capacity to accomplish these objectives. Number four, the relationship between the objectives and the size and the competition, or sorry, the composition of the forces committed should be continually reassessed and adjusted if necessary. Number five, U.S. troops should not be committing their troops to battle or should not be committed to battle without a reasonable assurance of the support of U.S. public opinion and Congress. And number six, the commitment of U.S. troops should not or should be considered only as a last resort. Now, to this list, I'd add a seventh point, and that no proper government should go to war unless the men and women who serve are volunteers. But I think that goes without saying at the time that Weinberger created that doctrine. Mm-hmm. Now, the war in Libya does not satisfy at least five of these seven points, neither for the U.S. nor Canada. For example, number one, the governance governance of uh, Libya, whether by Gaddafi or whatever government may arise from his overthrow, is not in our vital national interests. It's not. While Gaddafi has been responsible for several assassinations and terrorist attacks over his 40 years in power, and has been a brutal dictator in Libya responsible for many deaths, he's been kept at bay basically, since President Reagan bombed Tripoli during Operation El Dorado Canyon in 1986. That's not to say, by the way, that I would not shed a tear if uh, Gaddafi (laughs) and his entire cadre were wiped out tomorrow, because he deserves it. Now, number two, there is no clear intention of winning this war. The Security Council's resolution, number 1973, calls for a no-fly zone to be enforced. That's it, just a no-fly zone to be enforced. Nothing about winning or losing... This will most likely... It's a police action. Oh, yes, indeed. That's all they're doing is is policing. And as a matter of fact, it's not even a police action. A police action would bring a perpetrator to justice, and that's not even what this wants. That's not what this resolution is asking for. This will most likely not be enough, this no-fly zone, to stop Gaddafi from protecting his stranglehold on the Libyan population. I mean, right now there's no, uh, no, no Gaddafi planes in the air, and he's still out there fighting. The operation is called Odyssey Dawn, aptly named since Homer's Odyssey took 10 years. This could very well turn (laughs) out to be the dawn of a very long odyssey for us. Number three, there are no clearly defined political and military objectives. Italy, France, and the U.S. and Britain have already been arguing over whether or not taking out Gaddafi with an airstrike is part of his mission, which it is not, by the way. It's Mm -hmm. not part of the U.N. uh, resolution. But I've heard Harper say that it is, and I've heard Obama say that it is, even though the other allies say that it's not. Number four, there's no reasonable (laughs) assurance. Oh, man. Now, this is a quagmire we're getting into. There's no reasonable assurance of the support of the public opinion and in the U.S. Congress. In fact, Obama went to war without even seeking approval from Congress, which he is bound to do by the U.S. Constitution. Well, he didn't go... Now, you see, you're saying he's gone to war. Yes. Has he? 
Or has he gone to police action? It's a war. When you invade another country, it is war. Even Harper called it a war. Okay, so they acknowledge it as being a war. It is a war, yes. Now, mind you, it's not without precedent that this has happened. Um, There's uh, even been talk of impeachment, by the way, from uh, representatives, uh, for example, Ron Paul. Uh, And even in in some Democrats want this questioned. But like I said, it's not without precedent as President Reagan invaded Grenada without the prior approval of Congress. Now, in Canada, Prime Minister Harper unilaterally sent our troops, jets, and committed the HMCS Charlottetown to the war without consulting Parliament. He filled in leaders of the opposition on March 18th by phone. War is the last resort. Now, this is the fifth one that's not uh, fulfilled. War. Just, just before mm-hmm. you go to that, you just mentioned Grenada. Uh, he may have gone in without that approval, but he almost seems to have met all the other, a lot of the other criteria. He went in to win, and he yes. won quickly. He won. It was in their vital interest because it was so near us, and it was a communist um, uh, overthrow of the... Uh, actually, the, the government overthrew was pretty much communist, too, but still. I remember Reagan being very surprised that he even pulled it off because he says, wow, no secrets got leaked before we made our move because he said that never happened. He was actually laughing about it That's afterwards. another reason why sometimes it's not prudent to actually ask Congress. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you... Because you're telling your enemy, hey, we're coming. Yeah. Get ready. Start pointing your guns at us. Yeah, but you have to weigh, <laughs> weigh that pretty yeah. carefully. Now, in this case with Libya, I think that you could have asked Congress because there was absolutely no rush. I mean, it took a month since the first uh, uprising till uh, they decided on the resolution. Now, there's no reasonable... Uh, the, now, where was I? The, uh, oh, yes, the last resort. Last, yeah. Right, when all other methods have exhausted. And this is usually a situation which would apply to us to um, where our vital national interests are involved, in negotiating sanctions, things like that. However, since this is not one of these situations, there's no need to even consider the last resort of war in this situation. This war was instigated by a call from the Arab League and to a lesser extent by the African Union. Both of these organizations contain many states openly opposed to our political interests and many of the member states could even be considered hostile to us and dangerous to global peace. What are we doing listening to these guys? While the impetus for the war has come from these states, they are offering virtually no material support for the war. In fact, Now that the war has begun, they've even been criticizing the methods by which it's being carried out. The war is at the request of the United Nations Security Council. Now, the UN has a long track record of acting against our best interests and those of the United States. If it wasn't for the United States' veto, we'd be doomed. Any suggestion from them to go to war should be carefully considered for its long-term consequences. The rationale for this war is not to keep the international peace but to protect the civilian population of Libya. This is unprecedented. The civil war in Libya must be decided by the citizens of Libya. And in any civil war, there's going to be casualties. For us to pick sides of the rebels over Gaddafi, we may backfire if the rebels turn out to be worse than Gaddafi. Reading the paper day, uh, rebel forces have already been killing civilians and and supporters of uh, Libyan's uh, Gaddafi. I, I don't see them as being materially different from the people they're fighting. I certainly hope they are, but Uh, but we don't know. We don't know. The track record is (laughs) no hope. If they've become led by the mullahs and the Muslim Brotherhood, we could see many more civilians murdered by the rebels than even by the Libyan army. We could then be thought of as being complicit in their deaths. So we're going to take a little break here at the bottom of the hour, and when I come back, I'm going to be talking about why we are at war and Michael Ignatiev's role Mm -hmm. right after this. 
I'm going to bring in Brian Stewart now to get some perspective on Canada's role in the action against Libya and this government's view of the mission's endgame. And Brian, you just heard Neil talking about how confusing all this is on a you know, coalition level. What about Canada's view of, of this mission? Well, Evan, I'd like to say that Canada's view could bring real clarity to this, but in actual fact, there's as much confusion, it seems, in Ottawa as anywhere else as to exactly what the objective is here, who's in really command of it, how long it's going to last, and in fact, what success would look like when we achieve it. And the Prime Minister actually added a, and had a degree of confusion, perhaps the most confusion so far, yesterday in Paris when he spoke to the media and said he would say what nobody else was going to say, which was really to reveal that the real objective here was the downfall of Gaddafi and supporting the civilians would do that. I think we have a, a clip of that here. If Mr. Gaddafi uh, loses his capacity to enforce his will uh, through vastly superior armament, that he simply will not be able to sustain his grip on the country. I think that is the basis uh, on which we are acting, obviously, immediately to prevent his very aggressive actions and the overrunning of the rebels. But uh, as I think we saw before this, that given any kind of uh, equality of force, given any kind of ability for the population to act, that he simply will not last very long. So, Brian, this is key. The Prime Minister is saying he will not last long. Is he saying the goal of the mission, then, is the removal of Gaddafi? Well, he seemed to say after this that it's what people will not talk about, but he was one leader that was prepared to talk about it, that really regime change here is the overall goal. So it's suggesting that, yes, by helping this the opposition, you're in effect bringing about the downfall of Gaddafi, which would solve a lot of problems in the region, presumably. Of course, that opens up always the great problem that whatever your objective is to begin with, however, the more unclear it is, the more unlikely you are to achieve something satisfactory. Which and in this case is happening. And of course, Brian, that's outside of the UN resolution, isn't it? The removal of Gaddafi. Absolutely. It's, uh, the resolution is to protect the, the civilian population against attacks. And that's the, you know, that is the resolution. This moves it beyond, quite beyond that. And I think would have real effect on upsetting people and unnerving people if it got more, you know, circulation, this comment. Well, uh, the military people worried about what the exact objective of this no-fly zone is and I guess that's what you're hearing, Brian. Very much so. They, they would really, the military always would like to know, what is the objective before we go in here? Make it very clear to us, please. Don't give us four or five different missions with 22 countries all trying to figure out what is actually the mission here. And also give us a clear command, which is also not evident right here. But that's the great, great concern. Give us clarity, please, before anything else. Joining us now, KT McFarland, Fox News National Security Analyst and host of Fox News Live's DEFCON 3. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, obviously no friend of the United States, a very dangerous right. man. Your former boss, Ronald Reagan, called him the mad dog of the Middle East, right. went after him in a big way. But you seem skeptical about what we're doing. What right I'm concerned now. is for three reasons. Um, when I worked for Reagan, we had something called the Weinberger Principles of War, where we talked about you should never commit U.S. combat forces overseas unless you have a clearly defined objective of, that's in American strategic interest. I'm not sure what the objective here is. The second thing is 
what are we going to do once the military part is over? Who's in charge? Is it, you know, who do you turn this country over to if Gaddafi is gone? Or even if he stays, how do you run it? And then the third, and to me the most concerning, what precedent is this setting? We have never before in the United States gone to war overseas to protect somebody else's citizens. We've gone to war to rescue ours. We've gone to war in self-defense. We've gone to war preemptively in self-defense. But we have never gone to protect somebody else. And if that's the new rule of why you commit combat forces, why not Syria? Why not Yemen? Why not Bahrain? You could, why not Iran? But the, per the argument that Susan Rice and, and others were making to the president apparently is that you could have another Rwandan genocide on your hands yeah. in Libya if you don't do something. No, and, and that's a very, you know, th th that's absolutely right. And you're right to point that out. They were concerned that what the world would see is genocide on a mass scale of all the tribes that were against Gaddafi and all of the rebels and their families. But it does set up a precedent. Now, I'm not saying that it's, we should or shouldn't be doing that. I'm just concerned of the precedent and also the lack of the clearly defined goal. I mean, is it to get Gaddafi? Is it not? To echo your thoughts, the uh, government in Bahrain is accused of having killed its own yeah. citizen. Bahrain, a friendly country toward the United States. Does that mean we would go to war I don't in know. Bahrain? I mean, I think that's the problem. This is all very fuzzy to me. Um, you know, what is our goal? We don't know what the goal is. It is to protect civilians. Uh, do we have a strategic interest in Libya? No, we really don't. It's not our oil. That's French and British oil and Italian oil. Uh, do we worry about refugees? No, that's a European concern. Our concern, John, is what happens in the Gulf and the free flow of oil from the Strait of Hormuz. And so I, I'm also concerned that if we get preoccupied and bogged down in Afghanistan, Iraq, and now Libya, we're not going to have much left if there's a problem in Bahrain in Saudi Arabia. Indications are that uh, the Obama administration expects that we will continue these cruise missile attacks and the early enforcement of the no-fly right. zone, but then we're just going to sort of hand it off to the British and the French and maybe Qatar, one of the other countries that has uh, volunteered to send airplanes. Yeah. A couple of things. One, Qatar, which is an Arab country, the Arab League said that they were in favor of this, but they haven't shown up. Qatar may send planes, United Arab Emirates, but the rest of the Arab League has said, oh, we didn't think it was going to be this bad. And Gaddafi is using that to say this is really an invasion of the Crusaders coming back to the Middle East to kill, to kill Libya. Yeah, the Arab League said, go ahead and do it. And then once we did it, they said, ooh, that looks bad. Ooh, that doesn't matter. We don't have any part of this one. Yeah. And so I think then the question becomes, what happens to Gaddafi? Is anybody taking him out? Bob Gates has said that we're not. You know, Admiral Mullen has said that we're so not So you either. fear we may be in a briar patch that's going to be yeah. very difficult to get out. Good way of saying it, John. Briar patch. Bad place to be. Yeah, KT McFarland. Thanks, more John. on DEFCON 3, I know. Thank you. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600. And you can also follow us on um, Facebook. Just go to our website at justrightmedia.org and follow us on Facebook there. Also, you can send us uh, an email, feedback at justrightmedia.org, and we'd be happy to hear from you. And we're back on to uh, why we are at war. And I'd like to get a little bit into the resolution from the United, United Nations and the impetus for this particular action. Mm -hmm. Now, I talked about the change in the mandate of the United Nations from a keeping international peace to now interfering in civil wars in order to protect civilians. And this has come about largely due to a Canadian, former Chrétien cabinet minister Lloyd Axworthy. 
While President of the United Nations Security Council in 1999 and 2000, he tried to persuade the United Nations to alter its mandate to include intervention into sovereign states on humanitarian grounds. Now, I think the impetus for that was the, the Rwandan affair. The United Nations found it too controversial, so he convinced the Canadian government to fund a study on the consequences of such intervention. A commission was established called the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. And one of the panel members was none other than Michael Ignatieff, wow. leader of our official opposition. So that's where he was. Oh. That's where he was when he was down in the States <laughs> for, what, 25 years? Yeah. Stirring up trouble. The commission attempted to answer the following question posed by UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. If humanitarian invention is indeed an unacceptable assault on sovereignty, how should we respond to a Rwanda or a Sabernicha to gross and systematic violations of human rights that affect every precept of our common humanity? A good question, by the way. Well, it's always a question, isn't it? You can't do everything. No, that's, and, that's and, part and of the so, answer, yeah, yeah, but that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> Never, nonetheless, you know, what do you do, if anything? The commission responded by saying that, quote, military action can be legitimate as an anticipatory measure in response to clear evidence of likely large-scale killing. Without this possibility of anticipatory action, the international community would be placed in the morally untenable position of being required to wait until genocide begins before being able to take action to stop it." Unquote. The Commission refused to define what it meant by large-scale. I find it interesting the language here, clear evidence of likely large, which is undefined, scale killing. <laughs> it's all very clear. <laughs> and it's on an anticipa anticipatory measure as well. No, we, we have to anticipate that they're going to do something, probably something big, though how big we can't define, and it just has to be likely, and then we can go in and violate their sovereignty. So real, a real clear response to that question. The United Nations has accepted the findings of the Commission, and in doing so has set itself up as a world police force. No worse for now, it can act as if it, um, act if it suspects that harm might come to a large number of people. It has become omniscient by saying that it can now anticipate when genocide will occur, as it has done with Libya, but will not do for Yemen, Syria, Bahrain, or any of the many countries around the world which routinely murder its citizens. China, for example. The United Nations, with the aid of Lloyd Axworthy, the Cretchen government of the day, and Michael Ignatiev, has given itself new authority to wage war on sovereign states in anticipation of large-scale violations of human rights. Not to stop actual <laughs> large-scale violations of human rights, but to stop, stop it because they anticipate it. <laughs> it's probably going to happen. It's likely to happen. It may happen. Preventative medicine. Yeah, yeah. right. Like, so let's just commit like hundreds, billions of dollars and thousands of lives, perhaps deaths, just because we have a hunch that something might happen. Now, for Canada, forever the lackey of the UN, this is not out of character, as our governments have always acted on the evil philosophy of altruism since Conservative Prime Minister R.B. Bennett, and I went into that in an earlier show. But for the United States to fall into this trap spells the death of any hope for freedom in this world, I believe. President Obama has appeared on the world stage at just the right time to both single-handedly destroy the productive engine of the U.S. through his trillion-dollar deficits and relinquish the moral might 
of that world power by acquiescing to the dictates of an altruist-driven United Nations agenda. On March 18, 2011, the United States ceased to exist as we know it. A new power has arisen in its stead. The right hand of the United Nations clenched into a fist to intervene in civil disputes throughout the world. The question we should now be asking is what country will be the next to be bombed by the United Nations for so-called humanitarian transgressions? Quebec. <laughs> hey, we laugh. I know. But you know something? Won't be laughing for long, I don't think. My answer, Israel. Here's a Reuters article from Tuesday, March 22nd, two days ago. It read as follows. Headline, investigator says evictions akin to ethnic cleansing from Geneva. Israel's expansion of Jewish settlements in East Jerusalem and the eviction of Palestinians from their homes is a form of ethnic cleansing, a United Nations investigator said on Monday. U.S. academic Richard Falk was speaking to the U.N. Human Rights Council as he prepared, or as it prepared to pass resolutions condemning Israeli behavior. The situation can only be described in its cumulative impact as a form of ethnic cleansing, Falk declared. Falk would like the Human Rights Council to ask the International Court of Justice to look at Israeli behavior in the occupied territories. The future of the world looks bleak, Bob. Armed with this new rationale for war, the responsibility to protect, it's called. That's also the uh, title of the uh, report that mm. Lloyd Axworthy's commission came out with. Armed with that and a weak-minded, immoral leader of the United States, Barack Obama, we can only expect more intervention in even more countries, causing more cries of imperialism from third world nations, inciting even more acts of terrorism and retaliation. Now, the proper action for Canada, the U.S., Britain, France, and Italy to have taken when asked by the Arab League to intervene in Libya should have been that they must settle their own affairs, even though it may mean the death of thousands. The only way for nations to evolve into capitalistic and democratic nations is for them to get there on their own. Most often that path is bloody. And we may try to lead by example when we can, although that's getting harder and harder each passing day. But we can't impose freedom and democracy on upon other nations if their culture and their mindset is not ready for it. Even the term impose freedom is, is an oxymoronic. Oxymoronic, <laughs> yeah. Until they establish freedom for themselves, the best we can do here in the West, the best we can hope for, is to keep their current medieval ideas from polluting the rest of the world. Unfortunately, with the likes of Obama at the helm of the United States, I believe that um, hope may be lost for us, Bob. Well, any certainly in the short term. Yeah, I, I, the great danger has been our own way of thinking, that we've lost our way in the West. I agree. And uh, once we recover that, and I think that can happen quickly, I'm not as pessimistic. Uh, more and more people are starting to wake up to this, more than I've seen. I, I would say there's more advancement in that sense in the last year than there hasn't been in the last 20. But maybe just because it's starting to bubble to the surface, some people are finally saying they've had enough. Kind of like our healthcare system, we're starting to see that bubble to the top too. But whether anything ever gets done about it in, in, an, in an era of statism and government control, not too hopeful, that's for sure. 
That, that all you had on that, Robert? I think that's enough for now, yeah. Bob. I well, think that uh, the the future looks pretty dim, and believe me, that the resolution on March 18th by the United Nations Security Council and our response to it will be a marked note in history. I agree. Well, we're going to turn our attention now from Libya to another place that starts with an L, and that's back to London here in London, Ontario, talking about some uh, bailouts and corporate welfare, I guess, which has become a universally accepted view. And, of course, the relationship of government to business. Some interesting points that I ran across in papers this week, and we'll be back right after this quick break. For how long? As long as it takes. That could be for days. Well, there's nowhere else on the station that's suitable. That's too bad. I'm not shutting down for any Bajoran hearing. I'm sure Lieutenant Dax would appreciate it. Business is business. You know, that wall's going to have to come in about five meters. What are you talking about? Of course, after you move the wall, that'll mean your second level hollow suites will have to come down. Come down? Why? New restrictions. Restrictions. Building codes. Since the provisional government took over, they've got their hands into everything. And of course, <laughs> I'm the one who's expected to enforce their rules here. You know, I think this bar is just a little too near the exit. This is blackmail. No, it's just business. And business is business. So what do you make of this Philip Sperenson business, Desmond? Uh, not too good, I'm afraid. What do you mean? Worse than the press is saying. It's something more than just another investment bank that's made the wrong investments. Right, sir. Tip of the iceberg. Tell me more. They've broken the rules. What do you mean, the insider trading regulations? No. Huh. Well, that's one relief. I mean, of course they've broken those, but they've broken the basic, <laughs> the basic rule of the city. I didn't know they were any. <laughs> just the one. If you're incompetent, you have to be honest, and if you're crooked, you have to be clever. <laughs> you see, if you're honest, then when you make a pig's breakfast of things, the chaps rally around and help you out. If you're crooked? Well, if you're making good profits for them, chaps don't start asking questions. They're not stupid. Well, not that stupid. <laughs> so the ideal is a firm which is honest and clever. Yes. Let me know if you ever come across one, won't you? <laughs> Pretty much sums up a lot of people's attitudes towards business, doesn't it, Robert? Unfortunately. You know, I'm looking at the headline here, Political Fray Grounds Millions, talking about the Diamond Aircraft situation in London where opposition parties are calling on the Tories to approve a $35 million loan as they're going into an election now. And that was from the Free Press March 19th by Randy Richmond. And uh, we're talking about saving 500 possible jobs in the future, 200 employees working there now. Uh, they received a uh, $19 million, uh, not sure if it's a grant or a loan, regarding research before. 
Uh, Ed Holder, of course, questioned uh, what was going on with that money, got in a bit of problem. The mayor got into trouble for inviting uh, liberal sidekicks to a tour of the plant here in London and didn't invite the NDP and the Conservatives, and everybody got upset. And the public all got upset over a complete non-essential in terms of what the debate is all about. Now, you know, Ed Holder himself wrote a letter to the London Free Press on March 21st accusing Fontana of, of partisan politics, which, to me, true or not, is, is a non-starter. It's a non-issue. Anything political is partisan in some way, shape, or form. Some, some political party came up with the idea or opposed it. But the one thing we didn't hear from Ed Holder was that he too agrees with the Liberals and NDP that Diamond should get this loan as soon as possible. But instead of saying no, he's attacked the mayor for being partisan. Okay, so that's a way to stall an actual commitment on the issue. I don't know if that's his strategy or not. And, uh, you know, while I know headlines are not written by articles writers, I was taken by the spin inherent in the headline that says political fray grounds millions. And I'm thinking, where are those grounded millions right now? Are, are they actually in the ground? <laughs> are they in a vault just waiting to fly somewhere? No, they're not grounded anywhere. Those millions, in theory, are in the pockets of everyday Canadians and Londoners and in the pockets of productive job-creating employers who would have less money to create real jobs when their capital is confiscated by governments to lend to non-productive job-creating employers. That's what the whole thing is. They put jobs ahead of productivity. And, you know, the question is, why does the company need this money? Interesting. I, I read a fascinating letter. I had this, this is just an incredible letter. March 19th by a fellow named Jim Randall in Estevan, Saskatchewan. Appeared in the London Free Press. And he says, uh, PM's claims of job creation are illusions of grandeur. And he writes, I've listened to our politicians, especially our Prime Minister, boast of the great number of jobs they created. I know it is no secret for those who are out of work how much an illusion it is to claim that. I lived in Thamesville all my life. My wife of 29 years and I raised our family there, and we thought we were secure. Such was not the case. I found myself out of work like thousands of others in our area. I did find new employment in Estevan, Saskatchewan. My wife and I now live 3,000 kilometers away from our family. We recently went home for a visit and found there's new construction on a bridge and numerous wind turbines being built. This is great. I would guess it's seeing more than 100 people working on these projects, and out of all those people... Not one was a new hire. The companies that secured the work brought their own employees and their own workers. Uh, you know, if they were to hire 100 local workers, they would have had to lay off 100 current employees to do so. But yet, we are fed the line that we're creating new jobs. Mm -hmm. So to Stephen Harper, just a few questions. If you and your people did such a great job for the Canadian people, why do I live in Saskatchewan? Why are there more food bank needs than ever before? Why are the social assistance claims more numerous and of longer duration? As you can guess, I'm tired of politicians trying to claim victory by pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. And then there's the cream of the crop here. This is a terrible letter, I think, written by John Anderson, president of Canada Steel. It's a war to keep jobs here, he says. He says, I realize our leaders are missing something. We have a significant problem with jobs disappearing, and the way we're going, it's a sure recipe for disaster. We are not seeing a cycle anymore. The jobs and factories that help build our societies are not returning. Now, this I agree with, and I know FP leader Paul McKeever, an employment lawyer, would agree wholeheartedly with this observation. And on this point, we'd better take notice. Betty writes, uh, If you owned a company that made something and realized that continuing to make it here in Canada would bankrupt you, you'd move to a country that had no unions and lower wages. Being competitive is more than a luxury. 
There is, however, a solution. Here's the deal. You want to sell it here? You make it here. Tell our elected officials. It's not too late. Business is war. And it's time we started to fight one. Everyone else is. And that's from John Anderson, president of Canada Steel. This is from someone in the business community, Robert. And, you know, after having explicitly written in his own letter only a few lines above his solution that continuing to make something here in Canada would bankrupt you, his solution is to force businesses to do business in a country that he said would already bankrupt them. Like, how does he follow that logic? He's not talking, you know, business which exists legitimately only in a world of consent. He's talking about its opposite, literally a war, in which he's calling on the use of force via our elected officials who pass laws that obliterate consent, in a war that is actually against every Canadian whom he wants to force to pay higher prices that they simply cannot afford to pay. The money's not there. You know, if you want to limit... Free trade's a two-way street. You know, what's he going to do about his market if the other countries feel that way? And this is a prime example of why I repeat often on this show that most business people are really socialists and fascists in their political thinking. They don't think any different from anyone else. They're not capitalists. And, uh, you know, and consider this. Even if Mr. Anderson got his wish, the companies who, quote, would do business in Canada might do exactly what the previous letter writer just illustrated. They'd bring their own employees, especially if the work is high-tech and requires expertise. I saw this happen in a number of third-world countries I went to earlier in my life. Um, I remember down in Trinidad and Tobago, they kicked all the Americans out, you know, part of nationalism. Then they had to hire them all back in huge, uh, expensive rates to fix the telephone system, fix everything, all the infrastructure that they couldn't handle themselves because, like you say, you can't become a capitalist country unless you do it on your own. You can't do it. It has to come from within kind of thing. So, you know, these kind of... The days of cheap factory physical labor are really ending, and he says that too. So what saddens me is that no one's entertaining a real solution, stop the corporate welfare, eliminate the corporate income tax. That would help, wouldn't it? Reduce and eliminate personal income taxes. I think those few steps would go a long way in uh, improving our economy all the way around. What do you think? I agree. The loan should not be given to Diamond because uh, if that DJET was uh, worth its salt, there would be plenty of private investors out there to loan it to them. What's wrong, with, uh, what's wrong with that? I agree. That's it for this week, folks. And we've got to go, and we hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all right. How are we getting on with the all-minister, Humpy? Got this economizing nonsense under control? Yes, I think so, Jumbo, more or less. <laughs> what do you mean, more or less? Well, yes and no. Mm. Presumably it's like all the other government economy drives. Hmm? Three mm. days of press releases, three weeks of ministerial memos, then a crisis in the Middle East and back to normal again. Well, this one's started. <laughs>